Well, good morning, everyone. I have a cold. So I'm sorry if in the middle of this I have to get a drink or something. Um, but I may have to. And I'm not really sad about that. Um, what I'm sad about this morning is that right now my favorite thing in the world is getting to hold Lucy. And that's our daughter. And I'm not going to be able to hold her this morning. And, or probably all day. Um, I'm really sad about that. Like, that's the thing that is most sad in my life right now. So I've got a pretty good life. Um, this morning, we're in the book of Ezekiel. We're looking in a series called, our series is called A New Heart. And the theme of the whole book of Ezekiel is God's desire to give us a new heart. The, the picture in Ezekiel is that mankind on our own, our hearts are hearts of stone because of our rebellion, because of our sin. But God's desire is not to destroy us in that. It's instead to invite us to have a new heart, a heart of flesh that only he can give. And so we're going to look at that this morning a whole lot. Um, but as we start off, I want to invite you, if you have your bulletin inside it, there's a little insert if you want to take notes. There's also a thing you can tear out. And if you want to write information down on that or give us your prayer requests. We'll have a time at the end where you can turn that in. We'd love to know how we can pray for you. Um, at, at this point in time, we're just going to jump in, but first I'm going to pray. Lord, sovereign God, we thank you that you are so good. We thank you that you are in control. Um, we thank you, Lord, that in whatever shakes us, whatever on this earth troubles us, whatever on this earth earth causes us pain or discomfort or, or sorrow or, or stress or tension, whatever it is, Lord, we, we thank you that we know that you rule over all of it. And Lord, we thank you that your desire in a, a world of people that, that are just rebellious against you, including us, we, we thank you that your desire is to give us a new heart that we could live at peace with you. I, I pray for this time as we look in your word that you would just give us ears to hear what you have to say. Um, and Lord, I, I pray you'd be speaking through me. I pray you'd sustain my voice. And I, I pray, Lord, that um, at, at the end of today, our desire would be to just follow after you and just, just receive the peace you offer and live inside that peace. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So my, my question for you this morning is a simple one. Do you seek peace? or comfort, comfort or peace. I said it backwards. Do you see comfort or peace? And, and these two things, on, on the surface level, some of you may say those are about the same, um, but as soon as we start to dig down, um, what, what you'll find is that they are very different. Um, comfort is a, it's an easing of something, whether pain, whether, whether sorrow, whether sadness, whether stress. Comfort is the easing of something. It does not necessarily mean that that thing is done, but it means that for a time it's softened or eased. Um, the other is peace, and peace is very different than that because peace involves there's not a thing to cause discomfort or stress or sorrow or pain again. Now you may say to that, well, well Matt, there can be peace for a time and then not peace, and then what I would respond with is that then that was not truly Peace. And, and, and I, the reason I bring this up is because when we look in the picture of the gospel and when we, when we look in the Bible, the, the desire of the Bible is for us to see past comfort and look for peace. In our, in our relationship with God, we should not look for 
a God of comfort, although he does provide that, but we should look first for a God of peace. Because if we have peace, that, that means there's not the things that we would need comfort for. Or if there are those things, because we have peace, we know that there's an alleviation for them or an easing of them. And so, so as we look in the word today, I want to challenge you to think, in your relationship with God, are you looking for comfort or are you looking for peace? We're, we're jumping in the book of Ezekiel now. We're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 8. I'll give you a moment if you want to open up your Bible. Um, it's near the middle. It's a, a big old book. Um, it comes after Jeremiah and Lamentations and before other things. Um, if you're <laughs> I can't remember what comes right after it. But, um, so we're going to be in Ezekiel, and we're in Ezekiel chapter 8 today. It's the start of a new unit. The last two weeks in Ezekiel, we've been looking Ezekiel 1 through 7, God gives Ezekiel a calling, and it's a very unique calling because if you'll remember from last week, um, Ezekiel is in the land of Babylon, and he's in the land of Babylon while the land of Israel and, and the city of Jerusalem are still standing. Why Ezekiel is in Babylon is because the Babylonians have come, they've attacked Jerusalem, they won a big battle there, and they left, and when they left, they took a whole bunch of people with them. And Ezekiel was one of those people. He was actually a priest. And so Ezekiel, along with a whole bunch of Israelites, wind up in exile in Babylon, 700 miles away. And while they are in exile, in Jerusalem what is happening, there's some prophets that are saying, hey, we need to repent, we need to turn back to God. Um, Their names are noted as books of the Bible. And then there are a whole bunch of prophets that aren't really prophets that are saying, we're good. They beat us and they didn't break the temple. We're still standing. So I guess nothing's wrong. There are prophets that are comforting the ears of the people and saying we're good. While the true prophets, and they're proven true by the fact that in like 20 some chapters, we're going to see Israel destroyed and Jerusalem and the temple utterly destroyed. Those prophets that were speaking against that are, are the ones that are proven true. And they were the ones saying we need to be at peace with God. We need to turn from our wicked ways while others were saying, just don't worry about it. If God was mad at us, we wouldn't be here anymore. So we come to Ezekiel 8, and when we read this first, the sixth year, sixth month on the fifth day, that doesn't mean anything to us, but all you need to know is it's about 14 months since Ezekiel 1, and then we jump in. Um, As I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. So this is Ezekiel sitting in a house, and he's got the elders before him. Now this is promising. If you remember last week, um, Ezekiel is delivering messages sitting alone in a house. He's doing things like building a diorama, or eating gross bread, or shaving his hair. And the idea, he's not really speaking a whole lot, even as God says, you're going to deliver messages for me. But because of the messages he's delivering, mostly without speaking, the elders of Judah who are in exile have taken notice. So the Lord's people are starting to respond. Um, The other thing, um, and and this kept me up last night. I'm super excited for this. I hope you guys are. Um, So the word God there, you'll see it's a capital G and then a smaller capital O-D. If if this is your first time here, you're just going to be like, cool. But um, for everyone else, um, if you've read through, especially the ESV Bible, um, you would normally see Lord, L-O-R-D, in that capitalized format. It's really rare to see the word God in that capital. And what that is, um, if we go back into the Hebrew language, is that when we see the G-O-D or the L-O-R-D all capitalized, it's referring to God's name, which is Yahweh. 
And if you go through the whole Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, um, and, and look at this, you're going to see that God, it's normally Yahweh, it's in the, it's in the Old Testament like 6,000 times, okay? Lord is in the Bible a whole bunch as well, but the word for Lord here is sovereign, master, ruler, authority. Um, it's not Lord like the name God, but there's a Lord named God, Yahweh. Um, but Lord God, this phrasing like this, where it goes Lord God, only occurs in the Bible around 300 times. Okay, so that's weird. And specifically when G-O-D is capitalized. That's really unusual. Okay, I hope you're with me. Okay, Lord God occurs in Ezekiel 216 times. Okay, so that's like more than two-thirds of them. And you're like, what's the payoff here? Okay, we're getting there. Okay, so sometimes I joke with our high school students because some people, like, so Lord in the Old Testament can be a name for God, but it can also mean master, ruler, authority. But, but when we see Lord God like this, what, what we're trying, Ezekiel is trying to remind us of Yahweh's authority, Yahweh being the name of God, and he's trying to just force our attention on that. This phrasing of Lord God is very unusual. Um, some translations say sovereign Lord to be more in line with how the rest of the Bible is translation and, or translated, and I think that's really good. Because in the book of Ezekiel, it's a book of judgment. It's a book where God is trying to wake his people up and say, stop it. Stop having the stone heart. Return to me. Turn to me. Quit trying to follow your own comfort. Come back to me. And, and as God is doing that, Ezekiel is going to over and over draw attention to the fact that God is sovereign. And of course, sovereign means he's ruler. He's authority over all. God does not want us to miss that in the least in this book. And so I'm going to include it as sovereign Lord from here on out, even though the ESV does not. But so even as we start this passage, the hand of the sovereign Lord, the hand of the Lord that is in control of everything happening, fell upon Ezekiel there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man, below what appeared to be his, his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. I have nothing to say here except cool. Um, he put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head. So, so the image here is like this image that appeared to Ezekiel, grabbed his hair and did that, um, which is weird. Um, but, and the spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where there where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes jealousy. We'll talk about that in a second. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. So Ezekiel is sitting in Babylon in his house, and all of a sudden God appears to him, picks him up by his hair, and delivers him 700 miles away to, Babel, or to Jerusalem in a vision. And where does he set him? He sets him right in the temple of the Lord, the holiest place in all of Jerusalem, the place where heaven and earth are supposed to meet, where God dwells with his people, where they are living together. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes towards the north, and behold, north of the altar gate, one of the gates of the temple, in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary, but you will see still greater abominations. 
Now, there's a couple things we have to understand as we read Ezekiel 8. That word abomination, um, that's like a super harsh word. Um, and, and it's like the, the inverse of who God is. It's like when God refers to something as an abomination, it means that this is the absolute opposite wickedness of God. It is God saying this is something that cannot stand or stay or remain. And so when he says, look at the great abominations that they're doing, and then he says, but you will still see greater abominations, that's a really big problem. And what we see here, this first abomination we see is an image of jealousy. And if we put on our Bible scholar hat, we find out that that is a Canaanite Asherah pole. And all you need to know about that is they were worshiping God, specifically probably a God named Baal, B-A-A-L, um, and he would have been the God of storms. And we'll talk about why that matters in a minute. But So essentially, in the, the courtyard of the temple of God is an image to another God and people worshiping it. And the Canaanites, if you'll remember, if you, if you go back, the Israelites go into Egypt, they're enslaved there, and Moses says, let my people go. God moves them out, they cross the Red Sea, eventually they go into the land of Canaan and take over, and when they do that, God tells them, you need to remove the Canaanites, and a big idea behind removing them is because of the wicked things that they worship that are abominations to God. And now they're worshiping them again in the land that God gave them. It should fill us with tension. And he goes on, and he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall And he said to me, son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall and behold, there was an entrance. Now before we go on, the temple, if you read in 1 Kings where the temple is built, it is the most beautiful, it's a wonder of the world building. And in that building, it would have been wood overlaid with gold. And so this image that he was able to just start digging into it is an image that that this is just, the temple is crumbling. The insides are rotting. Like, like when we read this, the temple would never do that unless someone actively tried to destroy it. And yet here in his vision, God draws attention to dig in and it'll just fall away. And he said to me, go in and see the vile abominations that, are commi- that they are committing here. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping thing and loath- loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And behold, before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He said also to me, You will see still greater abominations that they commit. In this set of passages, we see that inside the temple, the the picture is that the elders, so the leaders of the people of Israel, have put up these carven images. And in our modern context, it makes no sense, but to someone in that day, that would have been an Egyptian form of worship. And what they did is they would build these carvings in their houses or in places in deep rooms in their houses or in temples, and they would go and they would have these like, like incense scepter things, and they would worship the gods before them with the idea that the gods are going to remove all the evil spirits from their lives. And so in the temple of the Lord, the leaders of the people of Israel are doing that in this vision. He goes on, Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and behold, there sat women weeping for Timuz. And he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will see still greater abominations than these. 
Now, mourning Timuz, um, Timuz was a Babylonian god. And um, so they haven't, they haven't been taken by the Babylonians fully yet, but they're about to be. But the Babylonians worshipped this god Temuz. And what he did, every year when there was a harvest, after the harvest, Temuz would die. And then you would worship him. Because if you didn't worship him, he wouldn't come back to life and the land would not be fertile ever again. And so there are women in the temple of the Lord that are worshiping a Babylonian god. And, and we should attach to this the idea, the Babylonians have started to take over Israel. And we should attach to this the idea that the Israelites are maybe thinking, well, maybe if we worship their gods, we'll be okay. Do you see? The next thing, he brought me to the inner court of the house of the Lord, and behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun towards the east. Now, when you dig into this, what you find out is that this sun worship is a unique Israelite blasphemy. And you might say, well, Matt, I know that Ra is the Egyptian god of the sun, but they are sitting in the temple of the Lord, bowing to the sun. And what's happening here, if you go into ancient worship practices, is they are saying that the temple they are in belongs to the God of the sun. And so they are turning Yahweh, God, the God of the Bible, into a God of the sun. They are relegating him to something he created. And this is the greatest of the abominations that he shows Ezekiel because what are the people doing here? They're trying to put him into something they can control. They're not worshiping him for who he is. They're not worshiping him as what he is. He is a sovereign God over everything and they are trying to say he's like the sun. He just kind of rotates. He, he's going to come every day and we'll just kind of, that's okay. And, and that picture of turning him into a sun God It's the greatest of these four abominations. Because it's not just that they're worshiping other gods. It's that they're making him equal with other gods. They're making him less than he is. And and that's the picture we come away with. And then the, the man says to Ezekiel, Have you seen this, O son of man? It is too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here. That they should fill the land with violence and promote... Provoke me still further to anger. Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Scholars have no idea what that means. Um, but it, it's not good. It's, it's, uh, there's cultic ideas behind it of they worship these things like I, God won't affect me if I do this. Um, and then, therefore, I will act in my wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. These abominations in Jerusalem, th- this is hard for us in our modern understanding for a lot of reasons. The first one is, I don't think that we, in general, worship a whole bunch of different gods, right? I, if you go home and have a relief image, to, like an Egyptian one, please stop doing that, okay? Um, but I don't think many of us worship in this way. But, but at the same time, when you dig into what these are, what you come away with is a very different picture. You see, in, in this time period, there was no such thing as an atheist, there might have been people who practically thought, well, I don't really think there's a God, but their entire education, belief structure, the way they were raised was that there were gods. That, that was a common belief among all of the people of that day. And, and so, so you can't just escape that, oh, they were just foolish because they worshiped thing after thing after thing. What you have to think about is why were they worshiping? In the image of jealousy, the Canaanite, I, I mentioned that that was the god Baal, B-A-A-L, 
Um, and, and he was a god of storms. And if you've ever studied Israel, like if, you, if you've ever read the Bible, you know Israel is a land of milk and honey. But if you've ever actually studied it, what, what you learn is that Israel has no irrigation. It is entirely dependent on rain. Do you, do you see why they might try and worship this Canaanite god to get rain? Because there's, there's an idea of, well, if we worship this Canaanite god, he'll bring us rain. And then we don't have to do anything else that our god says. This Canaanite god can give us comfort for our need without us having to change anything else about ourselves. And for the Egyptians, the, the relief images, the idea was that you could ward away bad spirits and the things that would cause evil. And so when they're doing that, they're thinking, well, we've had bad trials. We've been attacked by the Babylonians. Maybe if we worship these gods, they'll keep the bad spirits away from us. But, but in their mind, it was a logical thing. It was like a karmic idea of like, well, if we worship these things, it'll lead to this and this and this. They're, they're not just doing this thinking, you know, well, the Egyptians do it, it might work. They're, they're doing it thinking this might provide us with relief or comfort. And the morning of Timuz would have been tied to two things. It would have been tied first, again, to the idea of the fertility of the land. Like if we want the land to produce, why don't we just worship this Babylonian god? And the second thing, the comfort of, well, when they come, if they see us worshiping their god, maybe they won't kill all of us. That's probably what's going on in the Israelites' heads. The final thing with this sun worship the, the saddest thing when you read through the Old Testament is God builds this picture of, if you will follow me, if you will be my people, I so desire to be your God. And I will take care of you. I, I, like the, you read through the end of the book of Leviticus, there's all these promises of, if you follow me, I will provide for you year after year. You'll be able to take years off. I, I actually want you to take years off where you don't even plant anything. I will provide enough. And when you are attacked, one of you will chase off a hundred. And ten of you, a thousand. The, the picture in the Bible is a God who says, if you will just worship me and follow me, I want to be your God. And I am a God who can give you abundance in all things if you would just live at peace with me. And instead, the picture we see over and over coming to a head in books like Ezekiel is that the Israelites are like, you know what, God, you're, you're in control of one thing. But we're going to turn to these other gods for other things because they can provide for us what we need. There's a reality here of they were looking for comfort. And there's a reality here that today, the the biggest sin in our culture, the biggest sin in the United States, the biggest sin in Christian culture in the United States is comfort. Especially in the suburbs. And we're in a suburb. I looked it up. We turn so many places for comfort. On a side note, I'm talking about judgment. So I'm going to make jokes because it eases the discomfort I feel. But I want to tell you, I'm going to try really hard to go through this next part, just really firm. And it's, as I say everything I'm about to say, it applies equally to me. I'm not above what I'm about to say. It cuts me. As I was in my office preparing this morning and just praying, I was thinking, Lord, I thank you so much that you've given me a new heart. And I really wish I lived inside that new heart in a way where I I believed in the peace you offered instead of seeking the comforts of this world. So, I always hold a Bible when I preach. It's so that you know that when I'm speaking, this is what I studied. I always just look at the PowerPoints because I can't do both, but I'm setting it down for a moment because I'm going to talk about politics. And I have opinions on politics, and I'm going to talk about my opinions on politics. And as I talk about them, they are not reflective of this church as a whole. They are not reflective of what you have to be if you are a Christian. 
And so I want to make sure as I talk about it, I'm not saying this is what the Bible says. I believe the Bible has informed my worldview, but I also know people on both sides of both parties and people who don't align with a party that have different beliefs that I'm really comfortable with because I see how they are seeking the Lord in them. What, what I want to tell you today, a place that we turn for comfort, I, I'm going to give a very specific example. In 2016, when Donald Trump was elected, I, wherever you stand with him, something that broke my heart was hearing Christians start to say, it feels nice that we're allowed to talk about God. And what I heard from people was, it's finally comfortable to talk about my faith. And if you read the Bible, especially like the book of Romans, for I'm not ashamed, things like that, um, you, you come away with a picture of, we should not be worshiping or following God only when it's comfortable. And unfortunately, some, and this is not everyone, this is not me saying don't be a Republican, don't be a Democrat, don't be any of these things. This is me saying that the political party should not have any bearing on our faith. God is sovereign, he is over all of that. And if God is not sovereign over all of that, if our hope is in a political party, we're in trouble. Because if you go to 2015 and started to say what is this party going to look like and what is this party going to look like, I promise you no one had any idea what this year would look like. I promise you that because it, is, it looks nothing like what I could imagine. And I, I've only been alive 33 years and I think about how the parties have changed and how things have changed in our country. And if your hope and comfort and faith is ultimately in a political party, I just want you to hear nonsense. It will end in nonsense. The logical end is these parties are going to disappoint. And so if our faith stops there or if our comfort comes from there, especially in a, in a presidential election year where, where everything is going to be about my party, their party, I'm more comfortable with one candidate, less comfortable than the other, but is my faith hinged on that? We need to watch that. We need to avoid that. We need to put our faith in something more than politics or political parties. That should not be the place we turn for comfort. So originally this said self-help resources. And then I added the word Christian because I feel like it's really important that, first off, self-help resources in general are not very comforting. But Christian self-help resources are equally not as comforting. They just use Bible verses to try and help you be slightly comforted. Um, but ultimately, they do not provide peace. Um, when, I, when I started processing through wh where I go with this and where I think we turn for comfort, there are so many Christian resources that put all of the emphasis and onus on you being in control of your reality and you being able to do all these things. There's a, a specific pastor I've been researching because of a friend dealing with stuff at another church. His name's Bill Johnson. He's a pastor in California. Um, I, I read some of his resources that are very popular and it broke my heart because at the heart of his resources is a God who wants to be impacted by you. And the problem is, is that if God is impacted and shaped by us, at the end of the day, what we're going to find is we're going to find a God that has all of the bad we have. There's no peace in that because we as humans, there's a reason that we look for a higher power, for comfort, and for peace. But if we look to a God that is shaped by our human understanding, we are going to end in disappointment. And so many Christian resources do this. And I, there's a specific female author as well. I'm, I'm just, I'm naming shaman too. I just have to. Um, there's an author named Rachel Hollis who talks about at the end of the day, you really just need yourself. 
And she says that in the middle of a book about our relationship with Jesus. And at the end of the day, her conclusion is, is if you're at peace with yourself, then you'll be able to deal with anything. And the problem is, is if we are at peace with ourselves in a comfort level of ourselves, and it's not through God first, we are so depraved. We are an abomination to the Lord. And, and, and so it's not to say that these resources sometimes can't be helpful, but it's to say we need to hold a discerning eye. And in, when a resource puts us in the position to say, you are your own God, you are your own source of comfort, we need to recognize that we can't be our own source of peace because peace requires authority and we don't have enough authority. God reigns over us. So if we want peace, it's going to come from there, not ourselves. The peace we can give ourselves really sucks. Next, smooth sailing or in parentheses, no conflict. This is me in a nutshell. Um, when I'm at my worst. When I'm at my worst, I just want everything to be smooth and I will never confront things. I don't like confrontation, but when I'm at my worst, I will ignore it and just kind of like slide. And It's not really peace, but it's me saying, you know what, I can stand that. I'm okay with where I'm at. This is me. And, and smooth sailing, I, the, the best example I can give of this is when, when I was younger, I was in a small group where, where every week we would all talk about our problems. And, and we'd all, no one would ever confront in a loving way each other because it was like, well, I have problems too. And what happened out of it is our source of comfort was, well, things could be worse and they're not. And so our source of comfort was, if I upset anything, it could get worse rather than thinking, am I growing? Am I, am I moving in my faith? And, and the reality of smooth sailing is that this is, this is something that, that we as a culture are so conditioned to. Because everyone has their own truth. Everyone has their own, this is what I am. This is what defines me. This is what I'm allowed to do. Therefore, if you tell me something different, you're upsetting things. You're rocking the boat, and we can't have that. And that's cultural, but then that seeps into the church because we should be challenging each other. And remember what I said last week, the goal of all this stuff is not for you to start confronting other people, but you need people in your life who can confront you and who you can lovingly do the same with. So again, don't leave here just confronting everyone. The next thing, um, abusive consumption, and that's really vague because um, we're just a society of addicts, and I don't know which one to focus on. Binge-watching things, consuming things, social media, um, alcohol, drugs, different things. There, there's so many different things that we abusively consume. And, and the thing is, is that we turn to those things for comfort. And the reality is, is that as you follow those things to their end, they're never going to lead you to peace. And we all know that. But then we're tired after a long day of work and we watch like seven episodes of a TV show on Netflix and at the end of it we go, oh, there was stuff I needed to do. And then we watch the eighth episode because it was the season finale. And then we go to bed and then the next day, well, I got to start the new season. No, this is... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The final one, and um, if this is you, I hope this one hurts in a loving way. Okay. Um, one of the things that breaks my heart in our students is that so many of our students every day pray. And they pray when they have conflict, and they pray before a test, and they pray before a meal, and they pray, and they pray, and they pray. And they always ask God for things or tell God things, but the conversation is entirely one-sided. And, and one-sided conversations are terrible. 
Um, they're the worst. Um, that's what I'm doing to all of you right now is a one-sided conversation. But, but you come here willingly. If I was just like a friend of yours and I just called you up and just started launching into things at you all the time, and at the end of it I said, thanks, I feel better, and hung up, you'd probably like not block me, but you'd, oh, my phone was on do not disturb over and over and over, right? The, the point of this, though, is that if our relationship with God, I, one of my favorite Moody professors once said in a pastoral counseling class, anytime you pray, no matter who or what it's to, you feel a little better because there's something above you. It doesn't matter what you're praying to. It's just going to make you feel a little better. But what's hard is when you start to have conversations where, where what God has to say matters. And it's a lot more uncomfortable. And, and we, we should take comfort from it, but it's a lot easier to take comfort from this. It's a lot easier to, at the end of the day, oh, I didn't do my devotions today. Lord, sorry I didn't do my devotions. Here's where I'm at today. And then just talk, 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 and then amen and try and fall asleep. That's something I may or may not do often. But I, I, I tell you all this because it's comforting. It makes me feel better before I go to bed instead of saying, Lord, what would you have to say to me today? I haven't sought you the way I should have today. What should, you know, and listening to the Lord is going to be so much more rich and going to lead to peace, but we would rather just have comfort. It's, it's a true reality of humanity. It's true of us. And when we come up against this, it's really, really uncomfortable. And it's comfort. It's, it's tied. Okay, I can grab my Bible again because we're going to jump back in. But, but I want to challenge you that I'm sure at least one of these hit. I, I'm sure of that. And I want to challenge you to really start thinking about that in your life. And we're going to keep going into this. Because at, at the end of this whole book, we're, we're actually, we're going to fly right now. Um, we just read Ezekiel 8, which is about the abominations in Jerusalem, the places that the people went for comfort instead of God. That, that's just the reality of Ezekiel 8. And then we jump into Ezekiel 9. And Ezekiel 9, we're not going to read through it um, because it would take so much to unpack it. But at, at its source, what it is is God's wrath is poured out on Jerusalem. And, and what happens at the end of 8, because of all those abominations, in chapter 9, God says, I'm going to destroy it. And there's, there's a lot of judgment. There is a lot of hope in it. Um, if you read through it, one of the things that you come away with, Ezekiel says, Lord, are you really going to kill everyone? And, and God makes mention in this vision of those who are faithful to him, those who have a heart of flesh, he will spare. He, he does make mention of that, but it's hard and, and then in chapter 10, in the midst of God's wrath being poured out on Jerusalem, we also see that the glory of God leaves Jerusalem. And if you remember from last week, the glory of God, the, the picture in the Bible, in the, in the Old Testament, there was God who dwelled with his people in a temple. It started in a garden, then in a tabernacle, and finally in the temple in Jerusalem. And the glory of God was in the temple with the people. And in Ezekiel 10, we see that the glory leaves the temple while the temple still stands. All of the ancient beliefs would have been tied to, well, if the temple was destroyed, the God was destroyed. And here we see long before the temple is actually destroyed, God is leaving because of how wicked the people have become. And then we come to the end of this whole unit, or not quite the end, but the, the final thing, when God talks to Ezekiel about specifically why. God gives Ezekiel this picture. He puts him at the, the front of the, the temple, at, back at the gate they started at, and he points out that there are 25 elders, leaders 
key leaders in Jerusalem, and he talks about these leaders and talks about the fact that these wicked leaders are the ones leading the people astray. Because as the people are crying out, the leaders are pointing them to these sources of comfort. And, and the people are following after. But, but what God says is all of those people, what, what comes about in this story and what we as Christians should feel really uncomfortable about is that at the end of this story, what these wicked leaders are saying, if we really boil it down, is they are saying, because the temple is here and because God is with us, we've got to get out a jail-free card. They're sitting there saying, look, if the temple was down, we'd be in trouble. But since the temple is here, God is on our side because he's not going to let his temple be destroyed. So even as they worship all those other things we talk about, part of their belief structure is we've got God in our back pocket. If we really need him, we can turn to him. But right now we don't need to turn to him because things aren't that dire. You see, they, they, they think of God as ultimately they, they see his authority, but then in the middle of it they say, but, but until, until we're really threatened, we can live our own way. And that's how we live. When we're not in times of crisis, it's so much harder for us to turn to God for peace. So we just turn to comfort because it's easier. And, and yet, at the, the end of this passage, you, you see that what's happening is that the people treat God the exact same way. They're like, well, as long as his temple is here, we're okay. We're okay, because he's got our back. We can do whatever we want, because we know he's got our back. The modern Christian equivalent is, I said a prayer, I get to go to heaven, I can do whatever I want. That, that's what's happening here. I, I can pursue comfort, because Jesus died for my sins. So I can do whatever I want in, instead of thinking the way God desires. And so you have this picture of judgment. Really, really sad how God is destroying Israel. And, and one of the things I want to tell you in the middle of this, um, there's this amazing quote by C.S. Lewis that I think is so appropriate at this point in time. When you see the people just rejecting God on every level, C.S. Lewis has this quote about God's judgment. And he says, There are those who will say to God, thy will be done. Those are those who will be saved. And there are those to whom God will say, thy will be done. And it's those who will be judged. It's those who say, I'm going to follow what I want to follow. I'm going to find my own source of comfort and peace. And, and so that is the picture that comes out of this, is that the, the Israelites have said, we will do what we want. And God has said, I will let you do what you want. And that is the result The good news is, at the end of this, the passage isn't over. Because in chapter 11, verses 14 for 21, we see God's desire is not the last four things. They are realities of the human condition, of the fact that we are sinners, is that there's going to be judgment. But God's desire is to provide peace. His desire isn't to provide temporary comfort. His desire is so much deeper. Therefore, this is God talking to Ezekiel. Therefore, say, thus says the sovereign Lord, I will gather you from among the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. So after the temple is destroyed, after Jerusalem is destroyed, after all of you have been taken out, God promises, I'm going to bring you back. And when they come there, back to Jerusalem, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart, And a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. 
But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads. Thy will be done, declares the Sovereign Lord. When you come to the end of this passage in Ezekiel, God's desire is not judgment. Judgment is an outcome of our rejecting God. And God, sovereign God, the authority of the heavens and the earth, who is over all of it, his desire is the peace that he offers. He says, I will give them a new heart, one heart and one spirit, and they will have a new heart of flesh. I will remove the heart of stone. God's desire for each and every person is that they would not live and walk in rebellion to him and and, and live and walk outside the peace that he offers but instead that they would step into the peace that he provides. His desire is that we would be his people so that he can be our God. He's still God either way, but his desire is that we would be his people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we can just look at your word. Um, Lord, Lord, we just thank you that as we open your word and look at your just just grace and mercy. The, the, we know, Lord, that we are sinners and we turn away from you. But Lord, we know that um, through your Son, your desire is even in our stone-heartedness to give us hearts of flesh. And we thank you that anyone who has just, just accepted the free gift of your Son, that you've given us that heart of flesh if he is Lord of our life. And I, I pray as we go into a time of communion that you would just open our eyes more and more to who you are. And I, I pray that as we enter this time, that, that you would just help, a, help us just, just seek and desire, not comfort, not even comfort from you first, but peace from you and then the comfort that comes from that. You are the source of both in a true way. And I, I pray we wouldn't settle for anything less. It's in your name we pray. Amen.